1: Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome along to the latest edition of Football Digest Extra Time. My name is Nick Keating. I'm joined today by my good friend and good colleague, Connor Bromley, as we review what's been another busy weekend of Premier League action. I suppose there's nowhere else for us to really start. When the top two from last season collide, you kind of have to start with that game. But I suppose it kind of, it was perhaps reminiscent of maybe a later, uh, a match between title rivals later in the season. It seemed a bit cagey at first between Arsenal and Manchester City. They eventually worked each other out. Worked out to work one another around the pitch and kind of get through. And eventually it was Arsenal who managed to find that all important goal. Gabriel Martinelli shot taking a perhaps fortuitous deflection off of Nathan Aki. But was it a deserving winner for Arsenal? Did they deserve that bit of fortune perhaps in the end? Were they the better side? And did they deserve to get those three points against Manchester City?
2: Yeah, you know, since I looked at you, the, the plan we had for this show and I saw that question was going to come up, I... I I don't know how to necessarily answer that because it, it was a chess match, you know, to begin with. It was a very, there weren't many key chances, was there really? I can't recall the keepers having to work too much. Oh, David Ria, you know, nearly put one uh, off Julian Alvarez into in his own net. But other than that, I don't recall either team having many clear-cut chances. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, to me, my head goes to the the red card decision, which I know we'll talk about, but I think Arsenal are very unlucky with that. And I think because of that, I think to me, maybe justice kind of prevailed in the end that they were able to get that winner. But I don't think they were necessarily deserving winners. I don't think there was anything in the game and I thought it was going to end up being a a nil-nil draw. I didn't think either team really, I think even Gary Neville said it on commentary, that that both of them weren't really pushing for the winner they were being very conservative the counter-attacks were not really counter-attacks because there was five or six men behind the ball not joining the attacks it, it was a really cagey affair and I think both teams were willing to settle for a draw but obviously you know Martinelli if if you don't take a shot then you're never going to score and, and the thing is he had that little bit of luck with him but he decided to take the shot that deflected in and you know he, he took that chance in it, and it paid off for him but I don't think Arsenal will look back at this. I imagine there are analytics when they, they look at the game today. I doubt they'll say that they deserved the victory. It felt to me very much like a nil-nil draw, but these title games, these games which could define where you finish by the end of the season, it's it's whether or not you can, you know, find a winner from somewhere. And the one thing I would say is also Arsenal were exceptional at the back. Ireland Holland didn't have a sniff. William Saliba and Gabriel were both absolutely immense at the back for Arsenal. And they were... The, the the spine of this victory though know, they were they were phenomenal and I think Arsenal will look at that and say well them two players probably won them the game in the end just because of how quiet they kept the Manchester City attacking lineup. So in that respect I think also defensively were excellent and maybe that's how the, the shade of the game and how they won the game. But I think overall if you looked at the balance of play I don't think anybody could say that either side really deserved to win. Yeah you mentioned there about Mateo Kovacic
1: um Perhaps fortunate not to receive a red card. And I think he did his level best to try and get himself sent off, didn't he? There is, We're going to talk first about the, the the challenge that he put in on Martin Urdegaard. And I'll, I'll describe that a little bit more later. But of course, getting a, got a yellow card for that. Perhaps fortunate to escape from that with only a yellow card. And then minutes later, goes in and puts in another questionable challenge. And Declan Rice, which some sections say was fortunate to avoid a second yellow card. But... On both occasions, very fortunate that Mateo Kovacic remained on the pitch. I think Pep Guardiola's smartest move has taken him off as quickly as he could after that. But for that initial challenge, John Martin Odegaard we've seen, you know, we, we only have to go back to last weekend, Curtis Jones and, and perhaps his unfortunate uh, challenge that saw him where his, his foot went over the top of the ball and he, his his foot then went into the but spasum. But that's an unfortunate challenge. I don't think there was any malice in that from Curtis Jones, but Curtis Jones gets a red card and the subsequent three game ban for it because it wasn't overturned. Martin Odegaard knew exactly what he was doing, I think, there, wasn't he? He knew that he was putting in a, a hard firm challenge. He put didn't go over the top of the ball. Studs on a on a leg. Is is he fortunate in that respect that it wasn't a straight red? And you know, is it is it just um perhaps more so in between individual referees that you just get a bit of difference in between them. So refs might have given that up for ref stone.
2: I did think that the one yesterday I was because he gave the yellow on the pitch, I, I didn't know if they were going to overturn it, but it was definitely in that that realm of, if he gave a red card on the pitch, I don't think they would have overturned it. You're right. It is very similar to the Curtis Jones one. So it is surprising that they haven't done the same thing they did last week. But I mean, this is the consistency of All We've been talking about referees all day long, really. And the, the level at the moment, not just in the Premier League, but up and down the pyramid isn't good enough. And I think, I don't think this is one, uh, to, you know, be sending apologies about. I don't think it was that bad of a decision to give just the yellow card on Kovacic. I can see why the referee gave it. The worst one was the the second yellow card that wasn't given. That was the um that was the disgraceful decision for me. I know, you know, you want to sort of set that one up. So I'll let you uh lay the groundwork for the second yellow card and then we can lay into the referee for I've given it.
1: But well, now of course for anyone they didn't see, like I said, Mateo Kovacic, perhaps I mean, I'm, I don't know, you know, it, it, you, you kind of see it several times, don't you, when the player gets the first yellow card and they just can't help themselves, you know, that they perhaps should know a little bit better and then for him to go flying in on deck and rice. And and that probably would have been, had he not had that first yellow card, that, that would have been the first yellow card. But referees can't referee a game like that, surely. They can't kind of go, oh, well, I've given you one already. It was only a couple of minutes before. You know, I, I'll let you off this time. But no more, you've got to be very nice from now. And they can't referee like that, surely, because if it's a yellow card out of context... Then oh, Ben, has got the yellow card in context as well then, surely, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and I think that the reaction that Michael Oliver had, you know, when that title went in, he almost told the crowd, you know, he put his hands up, it was just like, no, I'm not going to give the yellow card. So clearly in his head, he knew it wasn't a great challenge because if he didn't think it was going to be worth debate of the yellow card, then you wouldn't react in the way of, no, I'm not going to give it as yellow card. You just would have blew your whistle and, and carry on with the game. But I thought that was the referee bottling that decision I, I can't see it being anything else I think if VR could look at second yellow cards I don't know why they don't look at second yellow cards because they're such an integral you know essentially it's the same as a red card <laughs> yeah I don't know why you could look at one and not the other I know they don't want to look at every single booking but I think second yellow cards sort of changed the way the game goes in a different way to a book and that they should look at them but if VAR looked at that they would have said yeah that's a second yellow card 100% well maybe not VAR at the minute with the mistakes I mean but you would think anybody who knows football knows that that was uh, a second yellow card and I just found it mind-boggling that Kovacic got away with it I don't know what he was doing like if I was Guardiola I would have been I would have subbed him off literally there and then because he was I thought he was just waiting to get sent off after that point. Anything he would have done, surely would have been a second yellow card because that was such a, a terrible and, and and stupid tackle to make when you've just had a yellow card. He's so lucky. He's a very very lucky boy, and I think it goes back to the start where also deserved winners. But I think had Man City been put down to ten men in the first half, you would probably think that also would have went on to win the game. So I think that little bit of luck they got with the goal that they scored, I think they kind of earned it here with not getting. This decision, But yeah, I think Michael Oliver, if he watched match of the day last night, would have maybe thought, oh, I think um, I got lucky there that, that Arsenal ended up winning the game and this didn't end up being the big, you know, talking point for the rest of the season. Because if, you know, Man City won the league by a point to come the end of the, the the campaign, we all would have looked back at this decision and went, oh, you know, had Michael Oliver, you know, held his name and sent off Kovacic, maybe this could have been a different title race. Well, you mentioned title race there, so I think it's it's probably best to to head to that now. Of course, this this victory it's going
1: to be one that's for Arsenal's confidence. Last year they couldn't get the better of City. If we're on the pitch or in the title race, they were they are beaten to City on on those occasions. This year already, we we're only what is it, night of October? We we're recording this podcast. Beating Manchester City in the Community Shield, and they've beaten them in the Premier League now as well. First time in a very, very long time that they've beaten Manchester City in the league. I think, you know, there's clubs that are even in the championship now have got wins against Manchester City more recently than Arsenal in the league. For them, this is going to be a huge confidence boost. But when we look at the title race more broadly, you know, and I've, I've, I think I've said this already on this podcast this season, I thought Manchester City would walk this title this year. They've now lost their last two in the Premier League. Of course, that was without Rodri, whether or not that that adds into it. I don't know, maybe there's more to it than that. Of course, there was a bit of a summer change at Manchester City, but they've now lost the last two. Arsenal, are, you know, have, have broken a hoodoo, I suppose, against their title rivals. What? The, how does the title race look? I mean, you know, we probably are looking at it far too early. We're not even 10 games into a season, but how do you see the title race looking this year have we got a two horse race have we got even perhaps a three or four team race I'm a little bit reluctant to put my beloved Spurs in there yet because I don't think we should be anywhere near it I think we've had a bit of a favourable fixture list so far but are there perhaps other teams and and for that there's only one other team that you can really look at really at this point isn't it I think it's Liverpool could they be perhaps involved in a title race with Arsenal with Manchester City this season
2: I think Man City look a bit more vulnerable, but I think they often do in the the early stage of the season. You know, we all know that they are a business end of the season team. That they're a team that thrives after January. I think back to them title races that with Liverpool, where they both just won every game until the end of the season. You know, Man City, are that team. So them dropping points this early in a campaign it isn't necessarily a surprise. And I don't think they'll be panicking in the Man City. You know, trailing ground about these results. I think that. Disappointing to lose two back-to-back. You know, I think the have lost three or four overall, three straight in domestic competitions. That will hurt them, but I think it it will probably help them overall because I think if they'd came out of these games with maybe some draws, it might have papered over the cracks. Look, Louis Rodri is desperately, you know, <sighs> it, it's terrible for them because you can see how important he is to that team. You know, we're talking about the Mateo Kovacic um, tackle yesterday where he should have been sent off I mean does Mateo Kovacic start the game if if Rodri's fit he he might have but he might not have but I think Rodri being in there would have really helped Man City yesterday and would have added that little bit of calm to their team and maybe even helped them go on and get the winner so I think he's been a huge miss for them I mean I've seen plenty of people saying that he's potentially at the minute one of the best if not the best player in the world you know with his his current form I don't know if I necessarily go that far but he's integral to this Manchester City team as integral as Erlen Holland is at the other end of the pitch and he's, he's such a big miss for them. In terms of who's actually in the title race, I would say that, you know, if, if Tottenham at this point, I think they can probably count themselves in there for the moment. I think they've got some things going for them in the sense that they don't have European football to worry about. Um, I think that will help them, having them breaks that they're not used to. I think as well, the way that they play football, I enjoy watching though. I think they're a good attacking side. I do think there's clear holes in the team. They obviously need a, a proper number nine. Whether or not they can get to January though, and 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 find somebody you know to come in and, and fill that gap, I imagine they've got a little bit of money burning a hole in their pocket as well from the Harry Kane transfer. I don't think Tottenham will you know f- win the league come the end of the season, but I certainly think they're they're in the the battle to finish sort of in the top three at the minute. I've not been impressed with Liverpool. I thought they were really really poor um, yesterday. I, I didn't think they did particularly well. I thought when they got ahead in the game, they didn't really kill it off. I think Brighton were unlucky enough to win that one. So then you, you ultimately come to Arsenal and Man City, and I think they are clearly the two best teams in the league at the minute. Um, but I do worry about Arsenal just seem to have more dodgy results than, than Man City. And I think Arsenal as well, they, they kind of have that little bit of an air of they, they can bottle big games. You know, we saw that, when they missed out on top four a couple of seasons ago at Tottenham because they bottled some end of season results. Last year, they went through that run where they kept drawing games. You know, they were winning games one and two nil and end up drawing two two. I think my worry for them is I don't know if they've got enough to avoid their mistakes. You know, I mean, we even saw them drop points against Fulham earlier this season. You know, title winners can't do that at home. So overall, Man City are still the favourites for me. I think. It would shock me if we're here in May and we're talking about anybody else winning the Premier League other than Man City, even after yesterday's result.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSC. Do you know what? You did very well to uh, succinctly sum that up after I threw about 15 questions at you in in that initial uh, request. We are going to switch though, to a team that probably isn't going to be in the title race this season. Um, and, and any Manchester United fans listening along, um, you can't really argue, can you lads? Um, it's not been a great start to the season. Lifted late against Brentford though at the weekend, Scott McTominay scoring twice in stoppage time uh, to get Man United the win over Brentford. But I suppose then leaving it that late, having to score twice in stoppage time, it it it's a win, but it probably
2: papers over the cracks somewhat. I think it's two ways of looking at it. You're correct in that analysis that it's paper over the cracks, but I think a team can often. You know, it shows a lot, I think, about Manchester United that they actually did come and score two goals in stoppage time because that suggests to me that the all behind the manager, I think it will galvanise the supporters in a, a way that maybe they've not had this season. And I think the players would have left that pitch feeling 10 foot tall, which I think is probably the first time this season they would have really felt like that. So I actually think it's a immense result for Manchester United, the position they were in. I mean, when I was checking the results, um, you know, just, just scrolling through my phone because I'd been at a game in um, in the afternoon, I, I was 1-0 as far as I knew. And then you look at your phone and it's 2-1. And then you come back and you watch the highlights and it does make you think, right, you know, clearly that Eric Ten Hag has something about him. Because if they'd lost that game, there would have been questions. We all know that we would have been sat here going, when's the sack going to fall on Eric Ten Hag? You know, is he... Has he got five more games? Has he got 10 more games with a given the end of the season? But I think that result really relieves the pressure going into an international break as well, where you've got two weeks where you can work. I know probably most of the players won't be there, but two weeks where the noise is quiet. If they'd lost that game, the noise would have been so loud around Manchester United and, and the international break wouldn't have probably benefited them. But now it will, that they've got this time off. So I think, yes, it does paper over the cracks. There's no denying that... The, Manchester United are going to be very fortunate if they were able to finish in the top four this season. I think you look at, we've mentioned Spurs, we've mentioned Liverpool, Arsenal and Man City. Them four teams for me are clearly miles ahead of Manchester United. I think add to that as well. Newcastle, I think are probably better than Manchester United at the moment and certainly more well-organised and better coached than Manchester United. So they've got a real battle to finish in the top four and I'd be shocked if they were able to pull that one off. But I think right now that, victory is absolutely huge for that football club that is currently, I think, in a, a pretty depressed state.
1: For anyone listening in wondering what game Connor was at at the weekend, I'm not sure he's still in the state to talk about it, unfortunately. For any uh, regular listeners, you'll be aware that Connor is a Sunderland fan and, well, that derby uh, at the weekend for you, you probably want to forget about very quickly. And so we'll
2: move on. It's not a derby. There's only one derby in the northeast East, that's Southern Newcastle. Southern Middlesbrough, not a derby. I mean, they're in Yorkshire, essentially. If he makes you feel any better
1: about the result, mate, I'll I'll let you have that. It's it's not a derby, but you did lose 4-0. But that's all we'll say. That's all we'll say about it. Um, We've spent many minutes and many probably hours at this point on this podcast this season talking about Andre Onana. So even though he didn't have his best game at the weekend, we'll brush past him quickly as well because, you know, we've, we've already probably done him to death this season and and we'll probably still talk about him as well. But the other player that we do have to talk about is, of course, Scott McTominay. Um, uh, a player that was linked with a move, heavily linked with a move away uh, from Manchester United in the summer, doesn't seem to be someone that Eric Tenag trusts much, but scores twice at the weekend He is a goal-scoring sensation for Scotland at international level. Uh, He happens to be the second joint top scorer uh, in Euro 2024 qualifying uh, alongside fellow Man United star Rasmus Huedlund, both with six goals uh, in the qualifiers so far as we head into the current international break. Does Eric Tenark just have to trust him a little bit more? Because it looks like Scotland somebody knows where the net is. We've seen that for Scotland, playing perhaps in a bit more of an advanced role. Could he be someone that fights his way back into this Manchester United squad now and kind of, you know, he said after the game, oh, he's got the club in his heart. Well, that's the kind of play that you really want, isn't it? Someone who's going to give 110% every week, week in, week out. Might not deliver the best performances, but they'll leave it all out there on the pitch. And perhaps there's one or two this season that, that maybe you could ask whether or not they've done the same.
2: I mean, also look at who got the assist for the winner. Harry Maguire was the one who nodded the ball down. So, you know, there's two players there on the fringes at Manchester United who involved in the winning goal. What I would say about Scott McTominay is... I've looked at Casemiro's performances this season and I think logically you would say that Casemiro and Scott McTominay are probably fighting for the same position. Casemiro is having a terrible season. I think he's he's nowhere near the player we saw towards sort of the middle to end of last season. I mean, how am I remember going into that League Cup final? Casemiro, you know, he'd been suspended and him coming in for that League Cup final against Newcastle was so huge for them to win that game. But you've got Scott McTominay there who's... A strong player. He's played probably 150 Premier League games. You know, he's got a lot of experience. He's proven when he plays for Scotland that he's an absolute dynamo in midfield. I mean, he runs the game for them. You know, that night where they played Spain, he was absolutely phenomenal. And it's crazy to use that word dynamo as well as Scott McTominay, but he really is when he plays for Scotland, he's excellent. You just wonder why not bring Casemiro out. You know, give him some rest. He's played a lot of football in his career. He's, he's won every time with Real Madrid. He's probably been playing 60 games a season for 10 years. Why not rest him? You know, give him some time out and maybe put Scott McTominay in At I think for Scott McTominay, if he isn't going to get a check, if he's not going to get games for Manchester United and starts, even when he's playing so well internationally, just leave. There's no point in sticking around because the manager doesn't fancy him. Even when he scores two goals, I bet you next weekend, he's not going to be starting the game. He needs to go and play for a team maybe that isn't in that that top six. You know maybe he needs to go to uh, a uh, uh West Ham something like that and he will absolutely thrive there and show how good of a player he is. I think he's just been bogged down for years being at Manchester United, being a bit of a scapegoat there as well. Um, you know, fans I don't I don't think I've necessarily warm to him at Man United. He's always a player that you see he can be memed quite a bit and why him and Fred I remember for years fans winning about whinging about him and Fred together. So. I think he just needs a fresh start and I was so pleased for him that he, he managed to score them two goals because I think he, he's a good player. He's He's got a lot of good things about him. I think every time I've seen interviews with him, he seems like a nice lad and I just think for him, it was really good for him to show how good of a player he is scoring them two goals and how clutch he can be in their moments. I just hope that he, he does get a chance with Eric Ten Hag, but I, I just don't see Ten Hag as stubborn as he is changing his plans and putting Scott McTominay in to be a regular for Man United again. Great knowledge on McTomley, uh, by the way, there because
1: you said that he's played about what is it 150 Premier League games, it's actually 149. And I don't know that that was a number that you probably just you know picked, but very, very close, very, very close. So I might ask you for the lottery numbers and then go one up from them as well because you, you're kind of close, but you're not that close. Um, but anyway, enough about Manchester United. Another team, uh, that did get a win at the weekend and they seem to have a bit of momentum behind them there is Chelsea, three wins from three. Are we starting to see the real Pochettino-Chelsea now? He, he said in his uh, a post-game press conference with Pierre Pochettino, he said that for where Chelsea were, they needed time. It was a young team. They need to kind of develop something. I think, I think the words that he used were actually, we're building something here. Three wins from three suggest that the building is starting to go quite well. Maybe the foundations have been laid for Chelsea earlier on in the season. When results weren't great, but now they can start to build up from there and, and kind of kick on as the season goes on.
2: Yeah, and I think Nicholas Jackson scored at the weekend. That'd be massive for him, you know, getting on the, the score sheet. After, I mean, I've seen him miss so many chances already in his young Chelsea career, but yeah, they, they've got momentum now. And I think you can tell with a Pochettino team, even when they weren't getting results earlier in the season, they're very well coached. They create a lot of chances. I remember that Bournemouth game they played away. I think it was a nil-nil draw. It might be 1-1 or nil-nil, but they absolutely battered them off the park that afternoon and just couldn't score a goal. And it didn't surprise me to see them score four goals at the weekend because it's kind of it's a bit like buses, isn't it? You know, one doesn't come and then they'll come and come and come. and it wouldn't surprise me now if Chelsea go on a run where they're scoring two or three in games because they do have that creativity in the side. I, I like the way that the team plays. I loved the goals they scored at the weekend. I thought they were all you know good, generally free-flowing moves. Raheem Sterling looks like he's kind of refound his mojo a little bit, which is really, really good because I think he's had a really down sort of 12 months since he left Manchester City. Um, I don't know where this Chelsea team goes. You know, I think for me, a good season for them would just be kind of being in the conversation for the top six. I think they need to be aiming for probably 60 points plus. I think that would be a really good season for them if they could do that. I like think it's unrealistic to expect them to be competing for the top four when you, you look at where, you know, even teams like Aston Villa and Brighton are in their development right now. You know, Chelsea, I don't think it's fair to expect them to even match those teams. Um, You know, you look at Newcastle, I don't think that Eddie Howe has been in there now for, what, two years? And, and you look at the way that Newcastle's been coached and the squad they've got, I don't think it's realistic that Chelsea could even sort of close them down. So I think you're probably looking at seventh or eighth in the table. But I think Chelsea have to be realistic. And after the disaster they had last year, the amount of players that they brought into the club, seventh or eighth I think is a, an absolute win for them considering where we even were a month ago where you know it was kind of looking like they were going to have another season similar to last year I don't think their worries now are going to be there for Chelsea I think Chelsea will think yeah we're not going to have another season where we're going to finish in the lower end of the Premier League you know, I think they'll definitely finish in the top half so yeah I'm happy for Chelsea I'm happy for Pochettino as well I think he's he seems such a, a nice bloke, a sound bloke. Every time we, we watch his press conferences, he, he, he comes across very, very well. And, you know, I really, really like him kind of in a similar way. I like Ange Postacoglu at Tottenham. You know, I just think they seem like really sound blokes who you'd like to have a pint with down the pub, you know. And and I like that sort of vibe from them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for Chelsea. And I think they'll they'll definitely be pushing the sort of top six this season. I'm not saying they'll get it, but they'll be there or thereabouts come the end of the season.
1: Just before we go this morning, we are going to throw it forward. As we mentioned a couple of times, we are heading into an international break, but we are going to give it the hype that it deserves, um, I think. Uh, for England, they play Australia in a friendly on Friday, and then they're up against Italy uh, in a Euro 2024 qualifier, which I think England can, if they avoid defeat, will see them uh, qualify for Germany. So, of course, that's it. That's important for them. Um, in terms of the squad with Gav Southgate's selected... I think we've, we've hinted at it in past podcasts, uh, definitely around the, the last international window, that if Harry Maguire, for example, gets picked and he's not been playing for Manchester United and the question's mount, out, mount, out, mail out, why is he in there? Especially when you look at someone like Ezri Combs, who's, who's playing really well, has been playing really well for Aston Villa at the minute, and you kind of wonder, why does he look that way not not this way? It, it Yeah. It, it, what do you make of that infant squad in, in general? He's not really kind of there's not really many
2: that kind of jump out and go, oh, I'm excited to see him for the first time. Yeah, he definitely has his favourites, doesn't he? I don't think there's any denying that. And you look at Jordan Henderson again, he's played, what, nine games in Saudi, hasn't got a goal, hasn't got an assist. He's playing in front of 900 people every week. And he's getting in the team. And you look at James Ward-Prowse, who I think has been excellent. I look at Sean Longstaff at Newcastle, I think he's having a brilliant season. And, And you just wonder, like, is this not the time? You've got a friendly, I know they play playing Italy, but we know that against Italy, he'll play the strongest eleven, which is already in that squad. I just think, would it not have been nice to see maybe four or five fresh faces in for the Australia game and, and see, you know, does Sean Longstaff fit in this team? Can't Sean Longstaff be the new Calvin Phillips. You know, why not try that? And I think James Ward-Prowse, I think James O'Prout's an excellent player. I think he's been brilliant for West Ham since he's moved there. He's been in and around the England setup before. Is there not a chance, though, to give him a start in the Australia game and just see how good of a player he can be? And it just seems to me that Southgate always kind of picks a safe squad when we know that basically England are going to qualify for the tournaments. These are friendly games. Do we need to see Harry Maguire? And nothing against Harry, I mean, he got an assistant that we get as I pointed out before. Nothing against particularly him as an individual. I just think for him, A, would it not be better to give him maybe, just just tell him, we're going to give you the squad off, take the two weeks, rest, recuperate. You know, because even though he doesn't play every week for Manchester United, Harry Maguire does a lot of traveling. He's always in, you know, European squads. He's always on the bench for Manchester United. He's always in England squads. Would it not have been nice for him just to give him a week off and just say, right, rest, recuperate, get your head straight? You know, that, that to me, would make sense. And I don't think Southgate ever looks at these international breaks and speaks to the players on an individual level and say, look, I'm I'm leaving you out this squad, not because I don't think you're a good player, but just because I want to see other players and I also want to give you a rest. And he just doesn't, to me, his squads just have no risk attached to them. And I think we've got so many good players in England right now, playing in the Premier League. Why not give, you know, Eddie and right is in the squad, but I don't have faith that he's going to necessarily give him more than a 20-minute cameo, and that's frustrating for me because we're heading into a World Cup. What happens if Harry Kane gets injured in March? We don't know who the, who the other options are going to be. I know we've got, obviously, Marcus Rashford, but do you not want to try another proper number nine? You know, does that not make sense? And it's the same thing if Declan Rice gets injured, but who's Declan Rice's replacement for England? You know, would Sean staff say, or James Will could they not be a potential replacement? And I think we need to see those players, and I think Gareth Southgate surely needs to see potentially what those replacements look like, which is why I just can't understand why he doesn't tinker a little bit with his squad and maybe include just two or three more sort of fringe England players. It just doesn't make sense to me, um, but it is what it is. Who am I to question Gareth Southgate when he has had such a good run as England manager? But I think as well, as you say, in that point, you know, resting a couple of players here and there,
1: especially in the build up to major tournament, I think Southgate has been amongst the managers to say, oh, well, there's, there's far too many games now for these players. So you've got an opportunity and you don't use it. But you mentioned Eddie and Kessier there, Levi Coleman as well, both in the last squad, both back in this squad, neither played last time in the last squad, even though there was that friendly against Scotland. There is a friendly this time around against Australia. I'm asking this question having already heard you briefly answer it, uh, that you think and Katia especially is maybe only going to be consigned to a, a twenty minute cameo for his England debut. But this game against the show is about trying new things out, isn't it? You know, it is about, you know, seeing are these players up to it. I suppose the game against Scotland would have been as well. I was I was, you know, I think I've I've been on record on this podcast in the past saying I was surprised that when Mark Gaye went off at half time against Scotland, that he brought on Harry Maguire over uh, again, Levi Colwell would have played that left centre back role perfectly for him. And we would have found out a lot about him. Instead, Harry Maguire comes on, has the unfortunate involvement in the Scottish goal that, that kind of gave him a little bit of hope uh, and set up a bit of a nervous end or a more nervous end than perhaps he would have been. But that's it. What, what, what did we learn from playing Maguire over Colwell? Maybe, you know, Southgate, as you say yeah, there, maybe he needs to be a bit more. Uh, risky in his selection. Maybe we will see Enkettia and and were against Australia. and Maybe learn something about them.
2: Perhaps you'd hope that they start that Australia game, surely. Um, but then I thought that with the the Scotland game, I suppose was a little bit different because even though it was a friendly, it was kind of the least friendly friendly you could ever play. Really, it felt like a proper game, and it was a it was a an entertaining game for a friendly. Whereas this Australia game, there isn't really any animosity between. England and the Aussies unless they're playing cricket or rugby so I don't see a reason why um, this shouldn't be a bit of a changed England team but look, I think it's a shame like them players who go to these international squads and don't get minutes on the pitch especially ones who haven't played for England before I just I think they must feel quite downhearted to be in the squad and and then not given the chance to shine because it feels to me like what's the point in bringing them you know if you're not going to do that and also if they get selected, you know, let's say that he gives Enketia 20 minutes and he gives Colwell 45 minutes. Is that really enough to see whether or not these players are going to be good enough for the the Euros in the summer? Um I think England have been pretty fortunate over the last few years that the major players haven't had injuries heading into tournaments. And my concern, as i pointed out before, was if England do pick up two or three key injuries in in um you know different departments around the pitch, I just worry that we haven't tested out players that are on the fringes and I just think these are the this is why you play friendlies I don't know what the point of playing an international friendly is if you're just going to play the same 11 you're playing a qualifier it doesn't make any sense to me I think that the friendly should be there to to learn about your England team and I I just I don't know I I, I just find it frustrating when I see so many good English players that just aren't given necessarily the the chance to prove themselves in this England team overseeing. And I hate picking on Harry Maguire all the time, but seeing somebody like Harry Maguire, or even, you know, your Declan Rice, your Harry Keynes, I've seen them play for England. I don't know how good they are. And I don't need to, to see them play against Australia and they're friendly, you know, but I do want to see it. Sean Monk's staff is the one I've picked out a couple of times, but I just find it for straight that he's had such a good start the season and his name's just nowhere near that England team. When I can see in that England team, that he could fill the role that Calvin Phillips has filled for the last few years. You know, it seems logical to me that Sean Longstaff could be that next version of Calvin Phillips and sit in there with Beckman Rice and Jude Bellingham. And I can see how that could work for England. And yeah, he's he's nowhere near this, this England team right now. You must be really, really impressed with Sean Longstaff
1: to be a Sunderland fan uh, publicly Calling for a Newcastle midfielder to make it in there. Uh, and of course, you, you said there about him being fortunate with injuries. I don't think you can get more fortunate than Harry Kane being on track to miss Euro 2020, only for that tournament to be delayed by a whole year and he's then fit for it. Um, But we'll leave it there for this morning, Connor. Uh, Thank you so much, as always, for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Of course, you can keep up to date with all the latest uh, from the international window, the Premier League, everything that you want uh, across the Daily Mirror, Daily Star and Daily Express websites. But for now, it's goodbye.